from the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. It is our 50th episode. It's crazy to me. Wow. Um, who who thought who thought we would make it here? You yeah. Know? I mean, I, I hoped. I was really just hoping, let's make it to 20, and then 25 came, and now we're double. I mean, I can do math. We're at 50 now. It's crazy. <laughs> and it's we, crazy, your math skills. I mean, I I majored in math. I didn't, really, but I graduated second grade. Moving on. We thought for our 50th episode, um, we would do a bigger director. And with a bigger director, maybe not one of their most well-known movies or, or um, most well-regarded movies. Yeah. And underrated. But that director is James Cameron, and that movie we picked is The Abyss. I've always loved The Abyss. I've I've grown to appreciate this movie so much over the last few weeks yeah. you know, while we've been watching and researching. Um, have you gotten tired of watching it? Uh, not really, to be honest. That's the thing. It's, I, there's, there's so much that happens in it and it feels like there are so many acts in this movie and it is just, um, action packed and the story's tight. Um, and it, it's strange cause I remember when this came out and this was one that I've, I just kind of hadn't watched since probably like the early nineties mm-hmm. and I don't know why in my head I thought this was like. A really boring movie and then you know we picked it and I was like I hope we made the right choice in the first <laughs> viewing like the first like hour I was like man this is like a really intense movie like, yeah I don't know why I ever thought this was like slow or boring in one of my watches of this movie um, one time I just watched it and just wrote down what were the intense scenes and it was just like a page a page so of just many. intensity um I've loved this movie I, I I don't know if it was my mom or what but it was a uh, it was always on HBO. So then I had HBO as a kid, and yeah, this one was a was a fun one. And yeah. one of the main characters' names is Lindsay. And when you're a kid, how can you not, you know? And, uh, one of the main characters' names is Bud, which is also my dad's name. And they're they're a divorced couple in the movie, yeah. so it was a little weird. Sure, sure. I've ta- it's taken thirty years, but I'm okay with it yeah. now. <laughs> well, I'm glad we picked this one. I, you know, I like that we can we try our best. Obviously, uh, most movies are well known. There's a lot of movies that we do that or cult type movies that are known. But this one, I never really hear anybody ever like talk about the abyss or like, Oh man, one of my favorite movies, the abyss. So yeah, it seemed like appropriate yeah. for like, if we we're going to do Cameron, let's go for, you know, something that's yeah. not as, you know, as talked about or, or well-regarded, like you said. I think something that has such an ambiguous title is always going to either make someone super interested or just make someone brush it away yeah really well so much to talk about with the abyss we'll certainly talk about the technical aspects and how hard it was to film this movie i mean you, we, you could do a whole podcast just on talking about how insane it was for them to film this movie if this is a movie that you haven't seen in a while and after this episode you decide to watch the abyss it is definitely worth watching the making of documentary because it will give you an appreciation for this film like <laughs> Like no other, I, I guarantee. Yeah. 
I, I can understand why at the time and I mean, I don't know if it's still if this still holds true, but at, at the time and for many years after this movie was considered the most difficult film that had ever been produced. And you can see why. I, I mean, just anything, um, any production is difficult, but take that production and make about 40% of that movie happen underwater. Yeah, that's a lot more difficult than you might imagine. Like way underwater, not just like... <laughs> yeah, way yeah. underwater. We're not just taking a little disposable yeah. camera and going five feet. Yeah, but uh, plenty to talk about with the production. Uh, we'll definitely talk about the differences between... Uh, and this is something I usually, you know, it's like if there's a director's cut of something or an extended cut of something, generally I, I don't like that version, but uh, there's a big difference between the two cuts of the director's cut yeah. or extended cut, if you want to call it, versus the theatrical. And so we'll talk about the differences with that and our opinions of those versions. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about Cameron, a little bit about the cast, some behind the scenes with the cast coinciding with the making of the movie because it was an intense shoot and a lot of intense things happen amongst the cast. Some close calls. Let's see. And something that uh, you might not realize, but there was some technology that was invented too for this movie which went on to help a lot of other James Cameron movies or yeah yeah wouldn't have happened without the abyss so yeah lots to talk about with the abyss we've also got our picks of the week mine is definitely Cameron related uh he wrote and produced Strange Days directed by Catherine Bigelow which came out in 1995 Uh, so that's my pick of the week and that was one I hadn't seen since it came out I haven't seen, yeah, I easily have not seen that since it came out. I definitely remember the movie cover because I worked in a video store. I remember that cover very well. My pick of the week was also from the late 90s. Um, It was a a little movie you might have heard of called Anaconda. I sort of just been like anticipating you (laughs) doing this movie as a pick of the week at some point. I mean, I guess it was only a matter of time. I mean, it's really just been a matter of time before I did a Jennifer Lopez movie. I know your love of J-Lo. I, I do love her as an actress. Yeah. It's true. And then, of course, we'll go to the Murray moment. But before we get into our first clip from The Abyss, Lindsay, can you tell us just briefly what this movie's about? Such an ominous title. The Abyss. So The Abyss is about members of an underwater oil rig who are enlisted to seek out and search through the remains of a sunken nuclear submarine. After handling technical and weather-related problems, along with some alternative mission-having team of Navy SEALs that come um, down to the depths to help them out, the civilian team encounters an unknown underwater alien species um, that's looking to make contact. Now, this isn't an alien movie per se, but we definitely have that element thrown into this in the latter half of the film. This is somewhat of a claustrophobic adventure that may run well over two hours, um, but there's never a dull moment in this movie man it's weird now that hearing you say the summary out loud it's like if you take away the alien and underwater aspect you've got like armageddon yeah and i mean that's one thing we'll get to is there's a definitely a a a cold war feel to this movie that was just stripped right out of it well let's go to our first clip then we'll come back we'll get into the abyss here we go All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Here. 
You put this on. No, no, what are you doing? You're the listener. Don't argue this with me, goddammit. Just don't put go it on. Look, this is not an option, so just forget about Lindsay, it. Lindsay, shut up. No. Shut up. Put this thing on. Just be logical. For one Stop second, logic. please. Listen. Just listen to me for one second. Now, you've got the suit on, and you're a much better swimmer than I am, right? Yeah, maybe. Right? Just... Yes. So I've got a plan. What's the plan? I drowned, and you tow me back to the rig. No. No. Yes, this water. No. We're a couple of degrees above freezing. I go into deep hypothermia. My blood will go like ice water. Right? My body systems will slow down. They won't stop. Lens. You told me back, and I can, I can be revived after maybe 10 or 15 minutes. Lynch, put this on. Minutes. You put no, it on. It's the only way. You just put this on. Put this on. You know I'm right. Please. It's the only way you've got all the stuff on the rig to do this. Put this on. But please. This is insane. Oh my god. I know. You okay? It's the only way. Here, hold this. Just hold up. You can do this, you know. You can do this. Oh god, Liz. I know. Don't you later. So like I was saying in the introduction, uh, we could do an entire podcast on just the the production of The Abyss. Uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to try to condense that down into like, you know, hopefully like 20 minutes or so. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll first start by saying like James Cameron is known to be a perfectionist. He's known to like push technology to the edge and beyond uh, when it comes to filmmaking. And this was certainly one of those movies for sure. They basically did what had never been done before. Yeah. And that's filming, like you said, 40% underwater. Not only that, having a closed and controlled environment. Most big movies they want to shoot on the studio where things are controlled. There was no gigantic tank that was big enough to build an underwater set like they needed for the abyss. So they had to go and search that out. Yeah. And there were two primary tanks it was uh, they were called a and b tank and in total it was 11 million gallons of water to fill these giant giant tanks and they were um, all part of this converted nuclear power plant in south carolina the smaller tank b tank was what they thought that they were going to use and then a tank was something that they just it was so mammoth that it wasn't even a thought that they were going to use this and then James Cameron's like you know what actually that one and if you think about it like if you want to film as much as they want to film underwater the ocean or any any um, uncontrollable natural atmosphere is going to be it's going to take so much more time and things are going to, there's going to be so many more things that cause problems. Yeah. And just, uh, just filling the tank, it said, they said it took five days and they five had days. to, uh, they, they, they sourced the water from a lake mm-hmm. and then had to filter it. So whole, and like the, there was a filtration system somewhat, but they basically like, this wasn't a working nuclear power plant. Yeah. This yeah, was, this this, was like, they converted abandoned. it. Yeah, yeah. It was abandoned. So they had, you know, engineers working around the clock to kind of like working on the set while they're filling this tank. And so they basically they had they were they were filling the water while building the set because I mean time is money. You yeah. got to keep going. It's just it's it's crazy. Uh, and and then just to think that this uh, entire film was shot uh, so far away from Hollywood. And I think mm-hmm. uh, in the documentary we watched, like James Cameron was saying, you know, like eventually. 
the studio is like questioning certain things because they were like, why do they need second sets of scuba, scuba gear? And it was because the, uh, all the chlorine that they were putting in the water, like was likely burning yeah. holes into the suits that they were using. And, and they had, you know, they put chlorine into the water initially and about a week in everything started getting murky and gross and you couldn't like filming was just pointless. So yeah, they doused it in chlorine and people, yeah. uh, not the actors because they had helmets on, but, uh, the the crew was having their hair bleached, losing body hair, getting chemical burns, and yeah, having their suits eaten through because there was yeah. so much. I, I mean, I can't even think about what long term damage that might have caused. And you know, you think about um, just uh, actors taking on roles. Me personally, I'm not an actor, but I'm also like have a tremendous fear of like being in, out in water or like being in like deep water. And I can't imagine like, you know, you get hired for a job and they're like, you know, you're going to train for two weeks to to be underwater. And, and then, look like you know what you're doing. Right, right. Too. Yeah, look like this is what you've been doing for yeah. like 20 years. Yeah. And then you're going to have to like have all this gear on. You're like underwater. You're like, and then you're going to have to act and like move around. And like every step of the way, uh, this movie was like rough on the actors. Uh, I, I believe... Michael Bean said that he was there for five months and he only actually worked for like five weeks. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I think I read that they'd never completed one scene in the entire day just because they could only film for so much because their movements and everything, everything they did just took so long because they're underwater. And the other thing too was that they had to, along with these special suits that were created for this film, they also invented a communication system that made it possible for James Cameron to talk to the actors and talk to the rest of the crew, but it was like a one-way thing. So if people needed to talk back to him, it was through hand motions. It was through I, you know, communication. It was acting it out because, um, you know, that's all you can do. And so things are going to take a little bit longer. So just imagine all of these scenes having to be so perfectly plotted out and communicated. And not only with with humans, but also with all of these devices that were also created for the movie that have to go from point A to point B and operated by, uh, you know, people that aren't aren't the actors. It's just everything yeah. has to be on point. And then also uh, lighting uh, underwater, um, making things look like it's the deep dark ocean because this is different from making it look like they're you know in a swimming pool or in a, mm -hmm. I mean it has to look like they're like as deep as you can go in the ocean and for long amounts of time uh, i think the actors like, were underwater for like six to eight hours during the day sometimes but, even longer and like Cam cameron himself was underwater for like 12 hours where, or he'd have to decompress for like two hours um yeah. and they're going down like 20 30 50 feet you know like that is that that's no joke <laughs> making a movie is extraordinarily hard uh, making a movie where you're mostly filming underwater, I can't even imagine. Underwater movies in general, most of them have been pretty bad. Three of them came out in 1989. <laughs> we'll get there, yeah. <laughs> but you look at The Abyss and like this movie is like on another level, technically. Mm -hmm. In some movies, when you look at them, the underwater movies, you can tell if you're really paying attention that they're not actually underwater. And that's not to say yeah. that there aren't parts in The Abyss. It's mainly without the actors. 
um, that there are scenes that are filmed not in water and that are made to look like that via, you know, smoke lighting, mirrors, that sort of thing. But with the underwater scenes, it's kind of nutty how they made it look like this in this controlled environment. And yes, lighting, I mean, electricity underwater, what? But they not only did they obviously paint or like spray the the um, tank all black, um, but also there was a tarp uh, for about a month. There was a tarp that covered this whole thing until the, the small tank. And then they well for the small tank, and then they had beads for the bigger tank, right? Yeah, like um, these like really really black th- beads, thick layer of uh, I think it was something like polypropyl beads something yeah, they, something that, that, that made it that floated on the top of the surface so that it blacked it out so that it looked like a dark yeah deep but, dark but you know. can't put like plastic on top of that because if they're i mean people have to come up yeah, out yeah, of the yeah, water if there's safely. An emergency yeah yeah um so this is just completely blacked out just i don't know i i love thinking about you know that environment and being controlled and in some ways it feels safe but at the same time it's also like these aren't just props that they're wearing and this is all very real they're really underwater they're really i mean you could lose your life with just one oh yeah yeah and it's crazy to me too that uh this far into technology like in the movie they're using that liquid that they can breathe Mm -hmm. and it's like it hadn't been used for humans but they had tested on animals and like this is like a real thing that exists and like in the movie when they're using those rats that was real. That wasn't yeah. like fake. That was that actually was like, the, the, the that actual, was the actual fluid, fluid yeah. and that rat was actually like breathing that fluid. I think Cameron said they did like, freaky. Yeah. They did it like on uh, five five different rats. Cameron said, you know, we 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 gave them penicillin injections after or a veterinarian gave them penicillin injections just in case there was some type of, you know, respiratory infection that would happen after the fact. That's not to say that people weren't upset about the fact that that this was used on animals in the film but those all of those rats were completely fine but they really did breathe that friggin special fluid it's crazy which is freaky yes you know the movie the movie is a technical marvel i know that the movie uh, you know this and this is all just like kind of reading in retrospect the movie got a lot of flack and i think gets a lot of flack because it goes from this sort of like underwater adventure movie into like this like alien thing i get that but the special effects of the aliens and this that that water effect that mm-hmm. they do when you're watching this 1989 i mean most effects movies that were digital from like 89 to 90 really like 98 yeah yeah you go back and watch those movies now and you're like oof those are rough yeah yeah but the Cameron movies are not, you know, you watch The Abyss and Terminator 2 and Titanic and you're like, man, this yeah. stuff holds up pretty good now. Mind blowing for 1989. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. And it was invented for for this film. Cameron had a vision and it was, I want to have this, you know, this, uh, I don't even want to say creature. It's just controlled water. Looks like it Liquid. comes up. Yeah. Yeah comes up and can shapeshift imitate someone's face and and that was a whole um you know invention too for this movie digitizing someone's face to then be um made into this water effect and it's so weird because it's like clearly 
he uses in Terminator 2, like, yeah. you know, a few years later. But yeah, it is, um, it is totally fun to watch The Abyss and then see Terminator, and you're yeah, like, that's where that came yeah, from. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. One, well, two, same thing with Titanic. There's a lot of scenes where mm-hmm. they're flooding the because. They, they had the set where they could drain the water out of it and then reflood it because there's several scenes in, in seconds, the movie. Yeah. yeah, there's several scenes in the movie where parts of the ship are flooding and the actors are trying to get out. And that was real. They like really flooded it. And, you know, Cameron did that when he went on to do Titanic, like had a set that they could resubmerge in water and empty out. And so, yeah, it's like someone who's like, you know, a visionary who's like, technically pushing boundaries and then like and then following up on them and using them for further movies and probably i'm sure the dozens of movies that used mm-hmm. you know followed and followed in his footsteps for their for their own productions that's one of the things that i like the most about this film is whether it is the limited time that we spend above the water um, there there really is no um, part where this movie takes place on land. It's either above water for a short amount of time or completely underwater. But everything that happens, these actors are really experiencing it. It might be a built set or a built ship, but they're experiencing all of it. And I think it really shows on how grueling of a production it was for the actors and for the crew. Even at the end of the film when everyone's so haggard and, you know, the the ship is brought up to the top of the water and everyone looks haggard and I can't help but feel like that's just how everyone like felt yeah, there, there's, <laughs> there's, the there's, a, the movie. there's a particular scene where like Ed Harris is like he comes out of the water into their bigger ship that they have and I mean the, the fight scene uh, is it after that where he's like cold and he's like sitting yeah. there? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Like his eyes look puffy. There's like a, yeah, there's like a scene where it's like after the fight scene where Ed Harris is sitting there and he's like kind of cold and in mm-hmm. I remember in like the documentary he was just like that's that what <laughs> there was I didn't have to really act that hard. I was just sort of like this like miserable sap at this point just yeah. like kind of like beaten down. And you know, we probably should talk about a few close calls or a few like hardships that the cast did go through. One being that Ed Harris almost drowned. That was kind of a big deal. Someone went to hand him air and gave him the respirator upside down. So half water, half air goes into his lungs and then they flush it out, thinks that it's going to be fine and does it again. And that was a that was a moment when you know, he really thought this this could be it. And they, they couldn't keep filming the scene after that. He said he like uh, later that night was like in his car, like drive, you know, driving home and like or to the hotel or wherever he was going, like kind of broke down sobbing. Yeah. Not because he almost died, but because he couldn't finish the scene because <laughs> of what happened. I'm just like, what a what a maniac. <laughs> he, he like couldn't finish the scene, but also like. I mean, I think he but was. He those was, are the kind of actors that James Cameron needs, <laughs> yeah, like a right. maniac who's like, "Yeah, I almost died," and then I was upset with myself because I couldn't finish the scene for the day. And it was like he was upset that he almost died too. It was like, "Oh, right. I shouldn't even care that I almost died. Right. I shouldn't have even gotten to that point." And um, I think for me, that it's like I said before, there are this movie is full of nonstop intense scenes. And Justin, you and I have talked about the scene uh, where uh, the character of Lindsay, played by Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, um, uh, decides to drown. She willingly drowns and go into into a hypothermic state uh, to where the idea behind it is that her body temperature slows down, but it doesn't technically. She doesn't technically. When she lets out that first scream from the cold water, (gasps) it's like... 
I mean, again, and that's like just a tiny intense scene of a million intense scenes. Yeah. And yeah, just it might be the one that makes me like makes my entire body like quiver a little bit is is watching someone willingly drown, you know, for like the supposedly something that might (laughs) maybe that might work. Yeah. Um, So the scene where that happens and Ed Harris is dragging her back to the ship like swimming back to the ship um well one that scene she she really doesn't have any type of breathing apparatus on that so in that scene being acted out it was done a few times and yeah she got air before that but then he's really dragging her underwater and then the the next scene she looks like a goner and they're trying to resuscitate her um you know with the paddles with mouth to mouth um, and it's just not working. That scene for me, I know you and I have talked about it, and you you said you felt like it goes on a little long. I think it loses a little bit of its dramatic sense, yeah. God, I think it doesn't. That, it's me personally. It's, well, one, I think, I feel like it goes on It goes on a long time, but for me, that's where you see the the love there that still that buds like I'm not letting her go. Yeah, yeah. It's a very like movie magic moment, you know. It is I mean? very movie magic. Yes. Yeah. Um so this scene looks incredibly painful and it was really painful. It's painful to watch. And so they're doing this over and over and over again and Cameron being the perfectionist. And that's where like he's like banging on her chest at Harris is like yeah. trying to get her and she looks cold. She's wet. At this point, you know, like in order to for defibrillators to work, you know, you have to have bare skin. So she's, you know, she's exposed. The scene is just very hard to watch. And they're doing it over and again and over again. And then the camera runs out of film. And with that, Cameron's like, okay, reload. Let's keep doing this. And at that point, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio is just like, I've had it. We are not animals. I'm I'm done doing this scene. And storms off the set. And everyone's kind of speechless because I think, you know, you watch this and you're like, yeah, this, I would be done with this scene too. I'm done. So the rest of that scene, it's kind of ingenious and really smart how Cameron made up for that. It's like from her point of view, from, the camera is her. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just like, I don't know. Um, like we were saying, intense scenes, um, this movie's chocked full of them. And that's where I feel like, uh, James Cameron, you know, he's like an old school troubleshooting director. He's like, <laughs> our star just yeah. walked off set and he's like, well, shoot her as a POV. <laughs> you know, it's like, forget her for the day. You know. Yeah. And you know, like we were saying, some of the actors had really intense moments on, on this film and James Cameron's intensity is something that is known and he's constantly raising the bar but at the same time I I don't think that there were ever like any complaints that he mm, was abusive in in any way but he's definitely not going to be a guy that's gonna tell you to do something that he wouldn't do himself and so I think he just his expectations are very high and his bedside manner might not be the best and he might come across a little uncaring but he's looking to get it done and to get it done well it just might be cold and i know mary elizabeth master antonio has uh, always been quiet about she's never done interviews about the abyss yeah. and to this day like won't speak of it she's kind of like disowned the movie so it says a lot doesn't yeah it? <laughs> yeah it's like you know and, and cameron's been known to be like 
you know a pretty big prick um, yeah. to actors and I don't not I don't think so much to crew but definitely pushing actors beyond their comfort zones and even Ed Harris he did he did the documentary and he doesn't really care to talk about the making of this film I don't think anyone regrets or at least no one's really vocalized regretting doing the movie but yeah. but pretty much everyone except Michael Bean yeah, uh, that guy's just like Michael a happy. Bean's like, it was cool, man. Yeah, yeah. I had a like, great time. He's like, I don't know, it was awesome. I love, but I mean, and he works with Cameron quite a bit. Yeah. So he's like probably, you know, just one of those people. What's well, the problem? He like yeah. slaps you in the face a little bit. Yeah, What's so wrong with that? Like, hey, I'm as crazy as he is. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's wrap up here talking about the tech talk of the movie. We'll go to another clip and then we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, Cameron, the script, the actors, and and stuff that's not so uh, much on the making of the movie. It took him 30 minutes just to get down there. Bud, do you hear me? You drop your weights and start back now, bud. The gates could be wrong. Do you hear me? Just drop your weights and start back now. Your gauge could be wrong. Your gauge could be wrong. You drop your weights and start back now. No, you won't stay there. Do you hear me? You drop your weights. You can breathe shallow. Do you hear me? But please listen to me, please. God damn it. You drive me back with a bottomless pit. You can't leave me here alone now, please. Oh, God, Virgil, please. Please. Okay, that's my Ed Harris impression. <laughs> that's pretty good. Thank you. Thank the you. sound effects in this movie like put me on edge. Yeah, there's a lot to be on edge about in this movie. But rewatching this movie, God, I love Ed Harris. It kind of like made me want to go on like an Ed Harris just like binge watch. I never really think of him as like an action guy ever, but I like so many movies that he's in. But the the scene where uh, he and and Coffee, uh, played by Michael Bean. Man, that fight scene, that is one of my one of my favorites yeah. and it just it goes from like sneaky and like tension building to like immediate like who like a, like a thousand percent tension. To me, so good. To me Ed Harris is like for like 1989 was like a modern day Robert Duvall. That's a good comparison. It's a know, very kind comparison. Just like sort of just like sensitive yet rugged character. Yeah. He's got a great jaw. Mm-hmm. Man, I can't stop looking at his jaw in this movie. It's so good. Nice eyes. He's easy on the eyes. Yeah. And nice eyes. Kind eyes. Yeah. Kind eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I never used to look at people's eyes until uh, <laughs> like we were like five episodes in, and then you were like, you know about Arnold Schwarzenegger, what I find really fascinating? I like to look at his eyes. And now, like every time I watch an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, I'm just like, why am I looking at this guy's eyes? Oh, yeah. Lindsay burned it into my brain. There's one thing I'm known for. It's I'm really taking in men's eyes specifically. It's really what I pay attention to. <laughs> Can you just get me like an up close, like Lindsay's eight like, by I ten? I don't of like straight guys, <laughs> but I like straight eyes. <laughs> God, you know me so well. Ugh. So Ed Harris, he has great eyes, amazing bone structure. <laughs> um, is interesting is, bone structure. <laughs> He's so stellar in this movie and definitely not to be outdone, but Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio um, plays Lindsay, 
who is his soon-to-be divorced wife. I love her character in this movie, but if you if you watch it, you know from pretty much at any point in the movie, from moment one, she enters the picture. People are calling her a bitch left and right, or just like, oh, be careful of that one. She's gonna stick it to you. And I can't help but feel like James Cameron did this deliberately. So many of his movies have a strong female character, And not that I think he's trying to take some type of feminist stance of not saying that at all, but specifically for The Abyss, there are two female characters um, in this film, and this is a very, very male-dominated field, job field, Um, and I I feel like he is trying to make that known, at least that uh, this is the experience of what it's like to be a woman who is very commanding, knows what she wants, smart on top of it, and not afraid of anyone and how she's treated by the surrounding atmosphere, very, very male atmosphere around her. What I do think is interesting in the script that Mm -hmm. Cameron does is that when she's giving Michael Bean orders, he mm-hmm. does this sort of like, like he like rolls his eyes and all she is, is like saying yeah. something that like is like very pertinent to like the yeah. situation. And she's saying it in the most calmest manner. Like she's not ordering anybody around, mm-hmm. but then like a mere, like 25 minutes later, he's just like barking orders at everybody. And yeah. then when Ed Harris is like, you know, like maybe like just chill out a little bit. My crew's not used to this, you know, like let's like ease in this thing. He's like, I don't give a crap about anybody. It's like, it's fine for him to, you yeah. know, but I do think with that scene Cameron is realizes the situation of like the male dominated atmosphere mm-hmm. and how they're the guys are being pretty sexist toward the Lindsay character and I think that scene where Michael Bean is ordering the guys around yeah. it's like he in the script he's kind of showing the hypocrisy of this whole situation of that it's fine for him to do it but you know, the minute that she takes charge, it's like, oh, woman's going to say something. And what's funny is that she doesn't even have to do anything except be obviously physically a woman. Like in that thing where he like makes fun of her for a second, he says he refers to her as Mrs. Brigman, meaning that Ed Harris's last name, they're getting a divorce. And she goes, don't call me that. Like not even in a like crappy way. She just goes, just don't call me that. And he goes, what would you like us to call you, sir? Like, yeah, come yeah. on, dude. And then, like, yeah, two beats later, he's being a total dick to everyone. It, the movie starts out where you're like, oh, this is like a real sexist movie. But then, like, you kind of, like... You realize that there's a point yeah, to yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Cameron, I think, is, like, smart enough to know. And, I mean, most of his movies are female-driven. It is strange to me. And I hadn't really thought of that until really looking closely at The Abyss and then thinking about other movies that Cameron's done. Yeah, well, he he loves his um I mean, strong female even, characters. Even Titanic. Yeah. Um. Let's see. With the with the cast, we've already talked about Michael Bean. He's in many James Cameron films. He is a solid uh villain for for this Lieutenant Coffee character. Yeah. And I don't think he's intended to be a villain, but what happens to his character just kind of um it just happens yeah it's kind of going crazy you know he's got the he's got the pressure sickness pressure sickness and it's interesting to me like you kind of see his range because I think he plays such a great sort of like crazy villain character in this and it's you know in term in James Cameron's Terminator he's such like this sensitive chill (laughs) character yeah Yeah. and 
you know, smooth talking. Mm-hmm. But then um, one of my favorite roles of his is a uh, tombstone. I think he plays like you do love like tombstone, a. Re- don't you? I love that movie, and I think he plays a great cocky, you know, villain, villainy, mm-hmm. villainous character. And rounding out the rest of this cast, um, this really is an ensemble movie. And I know we've only really focused on three of the main folks in this movie, but this is such an ensemble film. Um, Kim Scott, who's one night, she's she's probably in there as one of my one of my favorite characters. Um, J.C. Quinn throws in a solid performance, had a lot of trouble uh, in the underwater filming scenes. You wouldn't know that by by the film i'll just say that guy too has the most amazing imdv picture page it's like <laughs> he's just got like yeah. bleeding eyeballs yeah. for his like main photo yeah, that's right that's right um kid brewer who actually passed away year after the abyss was released yeah r.i.p he had a really good mustache in that movie uh john lloyd todd graff who plays hippie who's got the i mean you gotta love hippie in this movie he's got that got that rat with him he loves that rat and man that would be me That'd be me making sure that my pet is safe and making sure my rat doesn't drown, throwing it in a Ziploc bag. You know, that's you and I, Justin, really. Yeah. And then probably a little lovable. I love that uh, that catfish, Leo Burmester. He's a good character in this movie, too. Another good mustache. A lot of good mustaches in uh, The Abyss. Even Michael Bean. Great mustache. Another great uh, set of eyes on that one, too. Yeah, now the next time I watch this, that's all I'll be looking for, the mustaches. Get all the male mustaches and eyes. <laughs> um, yeah, the cast is solid in this movie. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't just mention that, uh, well, I mean, first, like, the story of the Abyss has been around in, in James Cameron's subconscious for a long time, but didn't really become a completed script until 87, and Gail Ann Hurd, who had had been with uh, James Cameron for a little bit, uh, became the producer on the film. And they got married before The Abyss started production. And then they separated during the uh, first like pre-production and divorced in February of 89. And The Abyss was released in 89. So they had gone through... <laughs> Obviously, a tumultuous relationship during the production of this very intense film had both stayed true to it. And the character of Galen Hurd, I mean, isn't exactly the character of Lindsay in this film, but it is kind of like based on her, one would say. Not that James Cameron is necessarily Ed Harris, but there's a little bit of obviousness in there and I think that's pretty interesting to note you know a couple going through a divorce in this film that's what's happening in real life to me it feels like Cameron's most personal film and probably I think one of his like better scripts too yeah yeah agreed so let's uh kick over to um sort of our final topic here for the abyss discussion so there's two versions of this movie that are available now um there's the theatrical version now that's what I grew up with me too and then there's a, an extended cut. To me, extended cuts, director's cuts have always been sort of like, you know, this was my vision or whatever. And then you watch <laughs> and you're just like, yeah, I can see why they cut all this stuff out. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes it works or you're like, oh, that thing could be left in. Sure. But this man, this version, I don't know. What do you think, Justin? I, I, I'm going to say I, I feel like the extended cut of The Abyss is better than the theatrical. Me And part of it is due to the fact that James Cameron was under the gun. The studio said, you have to stop. 
like the the post production went on for like ever. It was over a year, yeah. over a year post production. And they basically said you have to stop. And there were some digital effects that were part of the extended that you see in the extended cut that he wasn't as happy with. So he was fine. Like I'm just gonna cut out this entire scene. And he also cut out this entire subplot. Subplot, which when you take that away, you know, a lot of people complain about the abyss kind of the ending being lackluster and not really Or just like making a whole lot of sense. It just changes because you go from this like super like intense claustrophobic atmosphere and then you're like, What? Aliens? What's going on? And that scene the stuff with aliens is like kind of short. Well, in the extended cut, a lot more is explained, like the alien, you know, there's this whole like Cold War backdrop happening. The aliens had seen how the world had just sort of like been at war with each other. And that's, you know, and they were going to destroy the world with this big wave that was going to like crash down on every giant tidal wave, like yeah. 10,000 foot yeah. tidal wave. And we see all this in the extended cut whenever Ed Harris is talking to the aliens and he says, you could have killed everybody. You know, why didn't you do it? And that's when we see what's in the theatrical version of them showing his replay of his text to Lindsay saying, you know, I knew this was a one way ticket and him sacrificing himself. And they're seeing some, you know, there is humanity and it's almost like that moment of like, you know, when you say like, Oh, I'm so just, the world is terrible. People are terrible. And then you see this one little, grain of humanity in somebody and it kind of like changes things for you and it's like this is insinuation of that's what it did for these aliens they're like we were just going to destroy the world but because it just seems like you people hate each other but mm-hmm. you know we saw this act of kindness and humanity and humility and we decided we're not going to make this wave like crash down on everyone and it should be said too that with the the whole reason that Ed Harris's character goes on this mission that's like 20,000 leagues under the sea, the deepest anyone has ever gone, is to retrieve this warhead. And since these aliens have, have been able to monitor our news, know what's going on, they see that this man sacrifices his life despite leaving someone that he leaving people behind in order to basically save the world and this is why this is why they decide not to do that so this whole cold war idea was so much more of a story and we get a little bit of it in the theatrical release but it makes so much more sense and it's not to say that we don't we don't see the aliens until the very end of the movie we get we get enough sprinkling of that midway through the film but it isn't until boom at the end that ed harris is decided he's just gonna die with he's gonna disarm this warhead at the bottom of the ocean and he doesn't have enough air to get back up he's just gonna chill and die so it is understood by the end of the theatrical version that because of ed harris's care for the people up above the fact that he goes down to presumably you know save humanity or stop this warhead from being active it is somewhat inferred that that's what the aliens why they emerge at the end of the the film so what they do is they bring their entire colony the whole it's really cool this entire colony just like raises up from the bottom of the ocean and surfaces and it's it is a really cool beautiful like hopeful but you don't really know why ending 
And I never really questioned it because it wasn't anything that I thought of before other than being kind of out of left field, but kind of nice and positive. But I didn't really know why. The extended version, you're just like, oh, this clicks, that clicks. Now it makes so much more sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like... The extended version gives, it doesn't make the alien sequence at the end of the movie seem so arbitrary. Yes, exactly. And there's a lot more that was cut out as far as the Bud and Lindsay relationship. I'm fine with that being cut out. I kind of like not knowing more of their backstory, a little bit more of Michael Bean's character yeah. being a dick and, you know, some other, uh, some other crew scenes. Though, fine. Sure. Yeah. I would have been fine with that being cut out, but man, the, the whole Cold War complete apocalypse thing like that would have been really cool to keep in and i'm assuming there's been a you know we'll kind of close on this we got to get to our picks of the week but yeah um you know they've been talking about a blu-ray 4k version of this movie coming out for like three years Mm -hmm. and i can only imagine that it's because they're we're going to get this awesome version of the extended cut where they really finessed anything that cameron like wanted perfect yeah um because after this was released in 89 and then Cameron went on and did Terminator 2. He made a lot of money from that and then put money from from that back into finishing yeah. The Abyss. So, I mean, that's got to say something that you cared about that movie oh, yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, it's like if you think of all the movies that are on Blu-ray, uh, <laughs> the fact that, the, that you can only get The Abyss on DVD still is... is pretty nuts. I but. think it's one of his most underrated films and I... I've racked my brain trying to figure out why. And the only reason I can come up with is that I, I feel like it's not as for as sexist moments, intentionally sexist moments as there are in in the film. And for it being pretty much an all male cast, except for two women, it's not that bro-y of a movie compared to a lot of things. It's not really souped up or pumped yeah. up. It's a very much an action film. And, and when, I'd, and I feel like uh, Cameron can get pretty hokey in the scripts and I mm-hmm. feel like rides the edges of hokiness in this movie, but never quite goes over like he does in like his later films. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a little bit more romanticism in yeah. this movie too. And but, I, but it works. I think it totally yeah. works and it's totally believable. But I, I feel like that is one of the one of the things that worked against this movie because it when it came out, it's not like it was panned. It's not like it wasn't well-received. It just didn't. Yeah. yeah, and I just don't think people could appreciate it for what it was and mm-hmm. like what they attempted. But this is worth a revisit of, yeah. you know, and I say this about every movie we do, but <laughs> I honestly feel like this is like this movie deserves some like renewed attention. Whether it's the two hour and 20 minute version or the two hour and 50 minute version, like I I haven't gotten sick of watching this movie one time and I've watched yeah. it so many times yeah, recently. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's stop there. We'll come back for some final thoughts on the abyss, but we need to get into our picks of the week. So, Lindsay, your pick of the week was Anaconda. It and sure I'm, was. I'm I'm excited. I'm excited <laughs> for this. I haven't seen Anaconda in a while, and this is one I'm now. I'm definitely gonna revisit after you tell me about it. Yeah, I hope so. I need to watch Strange Days. I can't wait to go back to that one too. What can you tell me about Anaconda? Okay, so maybe this movie is too fresh and gross too much money but there's some part of me that thinks that anaconda will turn into a cult movie or at least a guilty pleasure type movie for a lot of people 
First off, um, this is not a poorly made film. On top of a beautiful landscape set off the Amazon River in Brazil, it's just a ridiculously fun monster movie. So Anaconda starts out like any other adventure movie, a mysterious, kind of scary beginning where we open on actor Danny Trejo, alone and terrified, climbing to the top of his boat in the middle of nowhere, frightened of something attacking his boat from underneath, enough to commit suicide. And if it weren't for the title of this movie, it may be more of a mystery. Um, the character setups follow all of the folks who make up this documentary film crew setting out on the Amazon in search of the elusive people of the mist type type of tribe. First day out, they come across a stranded man looking for a ride up the river. Now, if Texas Chainsaw Massacre taught us anything, it was to definitely not ever pick up a hitchhiker. And especially when you pick up on the river. I mean, there's a story behind that. It has to be. This interloper happens to be a snake trapper with an alternative agenda of tracking down a giant anaconda. He seizes every opportunity to become indispensable to the film crew and basically takes over the boat. Throw in some anaconda attacks along the way. We get our first sighting around minute 15 and you've got yourself a fairly tense, not rocket science, entertaining movie. Aside from using practical and digital special effects to create these giant anacondas, the other most standout aspect of this movie is most certainly the cast. If it weren't for the intense side-eyeing or snappy sarcasm, comically constant machismo and the cast's complete dedication to taking this all so seriously, Anaconda would totally be a fail. And if you know me, as we've already talked about, you know I love Jennifer Lopez in movies. Her willingness to commit to a role, comic timing, just being kind of a decent actor, I don't know what it is, but her in a monster movie, her in a scary movie, give me it any day. Ice Cube is next in line for uh, my favorite in this movie. He's really the only dude who isn't trying to prove something, and along with Lopez, is the most real of the entire bunch. There's at least two stealthy references to his music career, too, which is kind of funny if you catch them. Uh, definitely not to be forgotten is John Voight's performance as the snake trapper, boat hijacker, ruthless villain, who is so obviously the bad guy from moment one. And if you've seen Anaconda, maybe you remember Voight's pretty terrible impression of a Spanish accent. I mean, I think it's a Spanish accent anyway, of a factor that only adds to the campiness of this movie. I love the accent. I love that I don't know totally where it's from, but I can just maybe guess. And the moment that he's regurgitated by the giant 40-foot Anaconda and winks at Jennifer Lopez, I mean, come on. <laughs> This movie is so ridiculous. Even that moment is like a, a silly wink to the audience that says, hey, don't take this so seriously, even though we're completely taking this movie seriously. Not to be forgotten are Owen Wilson, Eric Stoltz, Carrie Warher, and Jonathan Hyde. These guys didn't have a lot to work with for their characters, but it doesn't really matter because they all serve their purpose and give totally fine performances. And you know, a movie about a giant man-eating, hunting, killing snake is a horror movie, right? It has all the tropes. We're violating sacred spaces, um, a mysterious stranger. There's plenty of POV shots of the killer snake, the sexy girl who ends up being the final girl. But where's like the boobs? Where's the sex? This, you know, is a horror movie, right? You're not going to find any of that in Anaconda. And that might be a letdown for some, but I kind of admire it for that. While Lopez is technically the final girl, 
she does survive alongside Ice Cube, meaning the two people of color survive this giant snake ordeal. And for a PG-13 late 90s horror movie, Anaconda did something that no one else was doing. And I hadn't really thought of that until watching it this uh, this time around. And in a sea of WB actors in the late 90s, a movie that comes along where all the white people die and there's no nudity, totally unheard of. Okay, technically, white guy Eric Stoltz survives, but he's such a non-character through most of the movie because he's like incapacitated. That's kind of a cool scene too, but um, he can't talk. He's bedridden. He misses everything that's snake related. He doesn't really count. As for the special effects, I think it's a crafty mixture of practical and digital. Like the digital effects have advanced a lot in the last 23 years. And some of the effects don't look that great now, but at the time they look kind of dope as hell. The animatronic anaconda though, dude, I believe that thing, it looks totally real. The, the practical effects hold up way better than the digital. That the, the digital stuff is kind of laughable. There's absolutely zero point in looking at this movie for any factual information about real anacondas in Brazil. If you want actual science and anaconda facts, watch a fascinating documentary on those topics. These anacondas defy gravity for entertainment purposes only, not to educate. I'll always uh, think it's kind of like a waste of time to make sense of a movie like this. It's just meant to be fun. And Anaconda isn't like reinventing the wheel with scares and it does have some laughable moments. But man, if you're looking for a no brainer, you just want to couch it on a Sunday afternoon. Anaconda is a pretty decent, funny and uh, just entertaining movie to revisit. I totally forgot about that regurgitation scene until you just now mentioned it. (laughs) It's it's even better than like the the um Freddy wink at the end of Freddy versus Jason. I don't like that wink. I'm, I like the John White wink. Yeah, I feel like uh, I'm gonna rewatch this as a double feature with Lake Placid or Snakes on a Plane. Yeah, it's a good one. I you know I think that it would probably get paired with Snakes on a Plane. I I like Anaconda more than that one. Um, I do too. Yeah, yeah. I even though I haven't seen it, I I remember feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I'm gonna more into this it, it would go so well with lake placid that's a yeah that's a guilty pleasure i, of mine. I really like lake placid <laughs> a lot too. um i really want to hear about strange days i remember about five percent of this movie yeah to be honest i i i remembered uh less than five percent <laughs> like i think i saw this and i just hated it when it came out and i think that was like the consensus of most audience members really? when this film came out in 1995 uh, was almost uh, kind of threw Catherine Bigelow's career out the window and was a uh, pretty big disappointment for the studios that were funding Cameron. Uh, Cameron wrote this, or Cameron, I don't know if it, the script was written, but he had the idea of this movie. He conceived it of about 10 years prior to its making, but Catherine Bigelow got really interested in the movie because the movie uh, really plays a lot on racism and corruption and that was going on in Los Angeles in the early 90s with LA riots and police brutality and so that's what drew her to the movie. It's kind of wild when you watch a movie now because aside from some of the technology that was supposed to be futuristic at the time looking very 90s, the movie actually like plays like really relevant now. I'm going to make this short because it's it's a it's a neo-noir 
there's a lot of twists and turns and there's so much corruption and kind of mystery going on. It would really be hard to like detail the movie without giving away a lot of plot points. And because this is a film that I feel like a lot of people uh, haven't seen, I feel like you, you should kind of go into it a little bit a little bit blind. But to put the plot simply, it takes place just a few days before the cusp of the next millennium. Uh, Ralph Fiennes plays an ex-cop who now is in the black market and he sells these recordings where people can put this device on their head and they can experience not only the sensation, they're visually seeing the images of something that's like a memory, but they can also feel the sensation. Some of them are as, as cheap and silly as uh, a woman taking a shower like a man can experience what that's like but uh there's also some dark ones where there's like a bank robbery you know and some people uh commit crimes so that they can sell the recordings to on the black market eventually it becomes wrapped up in a murder mystery and uh sort of like gets into one of these recordings is basically almost like a a snuff film is ralph uh, finds uh, goes deeper into this mysterious uh, recording that he has. Uh, he gets a lot of help from his friend who has a more legitimate job. Uh, she works as a limo driver and security personnel played by Angela Bassett. You know, I don't really know that I know a lot of movies with Ralph Fiennes in this movie particular, his character. Uh, he plays it so well. Like I can't really picture like anybody else portraying this character because it's comedic slash serious role I don't know he it's it's a very fine line uh there's a lot of twists and turns but they team up they try to help solve this mystery we find out that there's a lot of police corruption there's a lot of people in power that are getting away with things and it really uh within like the entertainment industry and like I said this movie cannot play more relevant now than it did in in 1995, I feel like maybe it was kind of lost on people, but now because corruption and everything is like so much more in the media, information travels faster. This movie, I think, like will will I think it's like very enjoyable. I think it was misunderstood when it came out because people were just like, oh, it's so dark, it's so graphic, it's so violent. But when you watch it now, you kind of see that it was trying to make a point. You know, if you put aside some of the lack in it not seeming futuristic anymore uh if you can put that aside i think it's like a very enjoyable film if you're into like the crime drama noir film genres uh this is one that i think is really worth going back and checking out it's a movie that uh is as as well as the same thing with cameron's abyss and true lies is not on blu-ray but um, I hear it's in the works, but, uh, I was able to pick up a DVD of it for like $4 at the Goodwill. So, and you can get it on eBay. I don't think it's streaming anywhere. I haven't checked Amazon though, but, um, Strange Days written by Cameron, directed by Catherine Bigelow, who I'm a big fan of, uh, a really fine film, a really smart movie, uh, really to me taps into the true meaning of like science fiction genre filmmaking. Uh, I highly recommend it. Definitely made me want to revisit it. Anything Angela Bassett's in, I'm always a fan of because that that woman can um, yeah, she can do anything. It it has been so long since I've seen this. the The visuals of it remind me, but I just don't. Uh, yeah. And I'll make mention. Uh, you know, uh, Juliet Lewis plays a small role, but she was cast in this because she could really sing, 
and she plays a uh, lead singer of a band and has a couple she has uh, at least one performance in the movie and um, if you like Juliette Lewis as a music performer, I think you'll really dig her performance in this. And I'm, I'm a fan of her as a music performer yeah. as an, as well as an actor. It is pretty cool that that happens in this movie and it was so early. So strange days, uh, definitely check it out if you can. Those are our picks of the week, Anaconda and strange <laughs> days. Um, what? Straight, just strange picks for, uh, the abyss. I don't know. I mean, they, it makes sense. Yeah. 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 They all know, make sense. You know, they're connected. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, let's uh, keep moving on. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Hey, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. Man, there's a lot of ways I could have gone with this Murray moment, and some have more loose ends than others. So for this one, I'm just going to play it safe, and let's revisit Billy's time on the set of the Wes Anderson film The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Now, I know heading out to sea is a little on the nose when we've been talking about The Abyss um, this entire episode, but whatever. Both films happen almost completely on the water, so it makes sense. If you've seen Life Aquatic, it's a pretty surrealist look at a documentarian captain's mission to hunt down the elusive fable-like leopard shark that killed his friend. There's a lot more to the plot, but I'm just going to leave it at that for right now. Visually, Life Aquatic is surrealism mixed with a heightened sense of reality. Like, you're watching it and are very aware this is a movie, but it doesn't make it any less believable. There is some real-life inspiration behind the film, which stealthily, maybe subconsciously, makes us buy the story a little bit more. Not to mention the performances by everyone in the film are totally top-notch. And like The Abyss, the water elements to each film did pose some challenges. Many times, Wes Anderson had Billy and the entire crew shooting in the early morning when it's around 19 degrees outside off the coast of Italy. I got a bone chill so bad, Billy explained, that Angelica, Houston, came in and was rubbing my body, trying to keep my blood moving. The crew was covering my body with cashmere and all these different crazy things that they were getting from town. He went on to say that the chill ran so deep to his core that his bones were cold for months after shooting. The cold was always an issue, and not just the natural outdoor elements. Even in controlled shooting environments, this was a problem too. Billy said the first day he and some of the cast got in the water, it was so cold. He's wearing a bikini brief, if you remember in the movie, and it's around 54 degrees. They basically got out this fire hydrant, said Billy, and then we just went right in. Co-star Willem Dafoe remembers this just as vividly as Billy does. The first session in the water ran about 40 minutes, and then they came out of the water, and there was another shock waiting for Billy and the cast. They had this fireman's hose of hot water that they just poured all over us and then said, get back in. The next in-water session, the cast was able to stay in for 20 minutes instead of 40. We came out again, and they poured hot water on us again, and then they had to pour it on us for even longer, Billy continued. 
and then they got back in. The next session could only last about 10 minutes, but this time when the cast got out, everyone kind of like looked at each other, getting prepared for this hot water just to be doused with once again, and almost like in unison, just kind of shook their heads. We're not doing that again. So what then? They had these shots to finish. What were they going to do? Well, they had to figure out how to heat the water, and they did, but they didn't know how to heat the water without making bubbles. So then you go down in the water, and it's heated, and then there are all these bubbles around you, and then there's fog around you. Just nobody could see anything, Billy said. And eventually, they were able to find a guy who could heat the water without making bubbles, but I guess it just turned into quite a big fiasco. Despite being a somewhat tough shoot, it doesn't seem like Billy regrets saying yes to Wes Anderson, though I don't think he was the happiest about the conditions. However, despite the technical difficulties, Billy said he was so far away from Hollywood that it felt kind of like a vacation. I mean, sort of. A hard, arduous vacation. Of every interview I've seen with the cast, everyone concurs it felt like it was... You know, there was a certain lightness on set, and similar to a vacation, some people forgot that they were working. I don't think anyone ever felt like they were on vacation in the abyss, but the cast bonding, um, you know, definitely did happen in the same way, and going through tough shooting conditions brought everybody together. I think that that bond comes through on screen and is yet another reason why Life Aquatic and the Abyss both really draw you in and and make you believe that um, all these people really have an intimate crew-like relationship. And adding to that feel, Billy was known to break into dance um, on the Life Aquatic set, of course singing and just general kind of clowning around. There's a couple videos out there random. If you go on a deep dive on the internet, you can find a video or two of this. There's a lot of sitting around and the cast could pretty much depend on Billy to just liven up the mood. And even when the production wrapped during Italy, during its uh, time in Italy, Billy invited the whole local crew back to his trailer for a toast. He just seemed like he had a really good time on this shoot, despite being physically uncomfortable. And I I don't know about you, but Billy Steve Zizou, his character, I mean, it's not my favorite, um, my most favorite of his roles, but sometimes it feels like it's hard to tell where Steve Zizou starts and Bill Murray ends. And although a tough shoot and with a guy known to be very particular like Billy, it's a testament to how much he believes in any Wes Anderson film and the way that Wes Anderson depends on Billy to be able to talk to anyone to make anyone feel at ease. Billy trusts that Wes knows exactly what he's doing and that any discomfort is going to pay off in the end. And I guess maybe the cast of The Abyss must have had some of that same trust in James Cameron, too. I would hope so. You know, it's wild. I, I adore Wes Anderson, but uh, Life Aquatic is probably the one that took me the longest time to like really come around, like warm up to. Really? Yeah. The first time I watched it, I was like not down <laughs> at all. Yeah. Like I feel like it just, I didn't even, I just felt like I was just like watching like one nonsensical scene after another, but <laughs> I still don't, it's still not one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies, but I've, I've grown to like really appreciate it and Bill Murray's performance in it. I love his performance. There's no doubt about that. And it is a very out there film, but I feel like because it's so out there that I can almost, it's that whole, it's a very big willing suspension of disbelief because it is completely not reality based. Well, thanks so much for that Murray moment. Of course. So we had uh, just a, quick final thought here on the abyss and we'll wrap things up 
1989, when The Abyss came out, prior to The Abyss coming out, there were two uh, studio-funded films about an underwater crew that deal with (laughs) some sort of being or creature one mm-hmm. the first one being leviathan which i feel like is like altogether like a halfway decent movie yeah. it's got a good cast uh the second being deep star six which to me was like really kind of pretty arduous to sit through <laughs> uh i watched both of these movies in probably like a span of two or three days in oddly when i was a kid i remember seeing deep star sticks i actually think i saw that in the theater like my aunt, really my aunt took me and my cousin <laughs> and i remember thinking it was like really scary mm-hmm. um but man when you pair it up next to leviathan and then when you pair it up next to the abyss it's it it was a pretty hard watch for me, like uh, this last go around. Yeah, both of these movies are very clearly subpar to The Abyss. I really liked going back and revisiting them. I was more familiar with Leviathan, though it had been a little while. But it should be said that the reasons, I mean, one could speculate, I guess you could say, that the reasons Deep Star Six and Leviathan came out or were made was when it was announced that James Cameron's new film, The Abyss, um, is coming out um, or going into production. Studios were like, so we got to jump on this and get some type of monster movie flick going. And so these two were just like cranked out. And it's not to say that there's not like, like Leviathan, there, there are a lot of elements to it that are fun or entertaining or good monster creature effects. I love Ernie Hudson in it. Yeah. I'm so glad he's in it. There are a lot of things that are lacking and a lot of things that could be lacking in Deep Star Six as well. Yeah, and a lot of it's just like the relationship. Like you just don't feel like you get to know any of the crews in those movies like you do in The Abyss. And uh, not only were those two movies, but Roger Corman got in on the action mm-hmm. with a right. sort of like underwater abyss ripoff movie called Lords of the Deep, which That's I right. haven't even, <laughs> the reviews right. on that thing are just like awful. <laughs> I can't, I, I it's on Tubi, but I did not, uh, that was the one underwater movie I did not watch uh, prior to us recording this episode. So it's just kind of funny that immediately, like this is a, um, you could say that it is probably played into one of the reasons that the abyss didn't do well so these movies came out were complete bombs and then the abyss's like production schedule was already running long and then post-production was running at least a year overdue and so when it came time and and cameron's you know still editing this movie right and um, executive comes in and is like look dude you need to figure it out right now because these other movies have come out and they're crap and we need to yeah. figure this out. And and this is back in the, you know, you have to frame the time period of this. Mm-hmm. Like this is back in a day when uh, like Disney and Amazon didn't own like everything. And <laughs> yeah. there was like multiple studios, you know, whenever like there'd be like whatever the high concept movie is for that year. Sure, sure. You know, all the studios would be like, this is our version of that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you don't really see that anymore because there's only like two studios and they everything is like very like you know no one wants to step on anybody's toes it's all like you have the month of may we have the month of june <laughs> type thing or whatever but um it's kind of wild that like all these movies came out and it's kind of like a blur to me now but when i go back 
these movies came out before the abyss. And so I could see how audiences were probably just like, Oh, I'm sure this is going to be yeah. about as lackluster as, uh, you know, the other two we've seen. And so, uh, it's a shame that the abyss didn't come out of the gates running on top of that. It was marketed as a horror movie too, which is very not, odd. And it was like towards the end of the eighties. So it's like, it was not, horror was not a genre that people were like clamoring to go see. And then you've got like underwater movies not doing well. Like yeah. this wasn't, this wasn't a good time. It's kind of weird. I always feel like it's like Cameron has always had this thing with studios where they just like have no trust in them, you know? And they're just like, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be like the biggest bomb ever. And then, <laughs> you know, he always sort of like comes out victorious though with the abyss, not so much. It wasn't really like a big hit. It didn't, it wasn't a bomb, but it definitely, for a Cameron blockbuster standards, you know, it didn't really make the money that like yeah. a Terminator 2 or True Lies or Titanic made. No, but um, those movies wouldn't be around if it weren't for the technology he created on The Abyss. Very true. And we highly, highly suggest you go back, watch The Abyss. If you can, watch the extended cut, but whatever you can get your hands on. But this movie most certainly deserves another viewing. If you've never seen it, Oh man, you're in for a treat with this one. It is, it's, it's not, um, I don't think it alienates any type of audience. Like you're not going to be scared. You're not going to, uh, you're not going to be, I don't know, freaked out. I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a great action story with, um, a lot of heart to it. Yeah, absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. And one last thing about the abyss. I just wanted to mention that it is available for streaming on HBO Go right now if you if you have that streaming service. Well, uh, let's end it there. I hope you've enjoyed our 50th episode. 50th episode. What? That's crazy. It's <laughs> awesome. I love that we're doing Congratulations, this. Congratulations, yeah, Justin. Yeah, I, I love that we, we've been doing this for so long. All right, so what do we have coming up next? What's 51, episode 51? Well, uh, this is a movie probably I would say like our most... Uh, unknown film that we've done on the podcast but i figured after 50 episodes if you stuck with <laughs> us and we did a pretty famous movie for our 50th episode you know we were thinking we should go like really more obscure for our next episode real deep cut here yeah real deep cut we're gonna do 1982's ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains I can't wait for this one. I'm I'm super excited because <laughs> this is a, and this is not a movie that like I grew up with. This is a movie mm-hmm. that I probably like, you know, found out about maybe like four or five years ago. Yeah. So this is a, you know, very young Diane Lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laura Dern. Yeah, and uh, just a really kind of gritty, fantastic. If you're into movies about bands, which I am very much so into. <laughs> yeah. And uh, sort of like 80s, weird, new wave stuff. This will be right up your alley. If it's a movie that you've never heard of, maybe you can check it out before uh, you uh, hit up our episode on that. Seek out a copy. We promise it's worth your time. Absolutely. Um, So that's what we got coming up next. We hope you've enjoyed the episode on The Abyss. Uh, It's certainly been a fun couple weeks researching this and Mm -hmm. getting into uh, sort of the madness that is James Cameron. (laughs) If you want to check out uh, old episodes from us, uh, you can check out our entire archive at our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. If you uh, are listening to us on iTunes, Apple Music, if you feel it's deserved, please give us a high rating on there. Leave us a review. Uh, That always helps um, spread the word. 
um, post about us on your social media. If oh, you yeah. want to interact with us, you can contact us or see us on Instagram, Facebook, don'tpushballspodcast.com. We're on Twitter as well. If you want to reach us directly, uh, we always love hearing from people at don'tpushballspodcast at gmail.com. My phone number, it, no, just <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, and, um, you know, we have a contest uh, going for this week for uh, the Abyss where you can get, uh, you know, for the people that are, and there are people inter- interested in this, I would be myself, uh, <laughs> you can get uh, the whole 1989 Underwater Trilogy on VHS from us. Uh, we're giving it away, Leviathan, Deep Star 6, and the Abyss on VHS. So uh, look for uh, details on that on our social media. So until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Raper. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys.